0: You can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever, be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, F-P-B-P. Stand for free the Black Panthers, and up the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here, up Cointel Pro. Shout. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me, i mad. Free the Black Panthers, FVBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay. Free the Black Panthers, FVBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police been infiltrated our movements from black leadership ship But we still here in the bill head upcoins pro RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't with misogyny, foolish stuff, don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack rock up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn. Unify or die.
1: NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, we have a a a people who are only 13 percent of the population yet we make up 80 percent of the prisons we have 50 percent unemployment rate in the black community and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison the 13th amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime the 14th amendment people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
3: Hello, is anybody out there? <laughs> I know you're media, but you're also human beings. <laughs> Let's <laughs> connect. It's early. I do understand that. So, um, first, I want, it, it's not lost on any of us, the irony of today, that as we release a report to address harms across generations, multifaceted harms, that at the same time the Supreme Court has decided that affirmative action is um, not appropriate for this country. I would encourage the Supreme Court to read the interim report. I would encourage them to read the final report and to understand that the legacy of enslavement, the ongoing harms, are with us to this very day And so this country is disingenuous. First, they used race to exclude us. And now they're refusing to use race to include us. So I wanted to just give you a very, very quick update about what has the task force accomplished. This is an historic body with an historic body of work. And so what have we done over the last two years? We have held 15 hearings, most of which were two days long. We have prepared a final report that includes over 115 different reparations recommendations that are aligned with the 12 categories of harm defined in our interim report. As of June, as of yesterday actually, we have been able to show that perhaps the Pew poll is not fully reflective of the attitudes of America. Why do I say that? Thanks to the hard work of Member Tamaki and Lisa Holder and other members of the task force, we have been able to compile over 302 organizations, some national, some California specific, that are endorsing the work of the the task force. 302 organizations, including organizations like Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus, the Chinese for Affirmative Action, the Los Angeles and San Francisco County Bar Associations, the Weingart Foundation, the California Wellness Foundation, the NAACP at the national level, the National Urban League at the national level, The list goes on and on. I would encourage people, go to supportreparations.org and read the letters of support. It gives a very different picture about this country's readiness to confront the challenges of race in this country, something we have never done. So what else, as I conclude, has the task force been able to do? We developed a compendium of racist California laws and cases, thanks to the hard work of Members Tamaki and Holder, we have, uh, and what they did was surveyed over 58 California Superior Courts and District Attorney Offices and 11 City Attorney Offices, revealing the lack of consistency and the discretion in what is collected and the absence of data, making it difficult to evaluate claims of racial discrimination in the criminal justice system. In collaboration with the Ralph Bunch Center at UCLA, we were able to do community engagement. We held 17 listening sessions across the state that included 867 participants. And coupled with that, we did a a statewide poll, a random sample poll, coupled with a community survey and surveys of the participants in the listening sessions. Over 4,300 people participated in those polls and surveys. The results have been published in a scholarly journal article. But one of the things I want to lift up from that report is, again, it is in contrast to the pupils that people often will cite. So 60% of Californians support some form of reparations in this country. The time has come. America must step up it's not just the well-being of people of african ancestry that is on the line it is the very heart and soul of this country if america is to be who she professes to be then she has to do the right thing and this time in this generation otherwise i truly worry about democracy i don't remember who said it but the basic point i want to end on is that racism is incompatible with democracy. Thank
4: you. Good morning, everyone. Um, It's an honor and privilege to be here before you today um, at the last hearing of the California Reparations Task Force. As you all know, uh, this illustrious nine-member California Reparations Task Force, we have been working diligently over the course of two years, not only to study uh, the innumerable atrocities against the African American community uh, with special consideration for those who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. But obviously, we also have been working very diligently to develop um, numerous uh, policy prescriptions uh, to um, end um, what we consider to be the lingering badges and incidents of slavery um, in California. We also have recommendations in our final report that are... um, you know, targeted to the Congress and to Biden administration as well. So I'm here before you today to say, give you a, a preview of what we will uh, be discussing at our final hearing. Uh, we will have 30 minutes of public comment, then we'll have 30 minutes of personal testimony where we've actually invited you know, three Californians who would be eligible for reparations in the state uh, to share their personal stories about the various different harms that they've endured um, in the state of California. Uh, Namely, we'll be hearing from Elmer Fonza, we'll be hearing from Yvette Porter-Moore, and we'll we'll be hearing from Marian Johnson. Um, After a personal testimony, you'll be hearing some reflections from each of the nine members of the task force. You'll also be hearing some reflections from the California Department of Justice who assisted us um, in this work. Um, And then afterwards, you'll have myself and Vice Chair Brown formally deliver the final report. to elected officials uh, to 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 symbolically represent the formal passing over um, of our work uh, to the legislature. Um, And from there, it will be up to the legislature to turn our policy proposals into actual reparations legislation. Uh, so that the material conditions and lives of African Americans, particularly those who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, actually change for the better. Um, the last note I'll say, and I'll hand it over um, to my other task force members, uh, today as you all know, uh, the Supreme Court struck down uh, race-based preferences our admissions um, in affirmative action. Um, coincidentally, on the day that the task force has our last hearing, uh, my only note is to say our work remains unaffected. Um, largely by that decision because of the wisdom um, that we had in consulting with legal experts like UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Timorinsky who predicted this outcome today and that's why our, most of our policy prescriptions are not race based but they're based on lineage. Um, they are for those who are descendants of slaves. So again, um, we made the, the right decision uh, because of the wisdom and the wherewithal we had to consult with um, expert witnesses like Dean Irwin Chemerinsky and Secretary Weber, um, who pretty much told us um, who she had in mind when she authored AB 3121 and that are African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. Thank you. Well, good
1: morning. Uh, I'm Dr. Shirley Weber, California's Secretary of State, and I want to welcome you to the a March Pong U building uh, that houses the offices and the programs of the California Secretary of State. Uh, I'm honored to be here with you and I want to thank the task force for its diligence and its truly hard work. Uh, This is groundbreaking uh, work that they've done uh, in the nation that has oftentimes denied its its responsibility for slavery and the impact of slavery on the lives of others. And so it's good to have you here. I want to thank the task force and nine of them who've worked very, very hard to make today day possible. I also want to thank my good friend uh, Rob Bonta, the Attorney General, because at the time when I wrote this bill a couple of years ago, we placed it into the Attorney General's office in his hands to make sure that he would administer the task force and make sure that the meetings occurred and the reports and, and assisted in, in terms of writing the, the task, the uh, recommendations themselves. So, I'm really pleased that the Attorney General has been a partner in this and has worked very hard with us. So I want to thank him and his staff for that. It has not been easy accomplishing this task in terms of arriving to where we are. Uh, when we, I decided some years ago, two years ago, that we would actually take on the challenge of reparations. It was because I felt very strongly that California, if any state could do it, it would be California. That this effort has been tried many times at the federal level, but because of the complexity of the politics of this nation and its resistance to uh, any kind of change or activity with regard to African-Americans, it had failed many times in terms of when it had been proposed and had not been supported. California was able to do it in less than a year. We proposed the recommendation for the task force, and in less than a year, we got it through both houses and signed by the governor. Uh, The work has been difficult, it has been hard, but it has been enlightening. And I hope those of you who get a chance to look at the report, whether it's the uh, first report or the final report, you will see that it was important for us to do California. And it was important because so often when I was asked, when I was writing it, people said, California? Why California? And the issue often is, why not? Because slavery in this nation went across the entire nation. People didn't just remain in the South. And the policies and the laws of this nation affected every state and many places beyond the state. And so it was important that we let people know that reparations is due, whether you're in Mississippi or you're in California, that reparations is due, that the harm has been done, And we need to begin to repair the harm and stop patching it up, as we have done for many, many years, without any effort. that's there. As mentioned, we all heard this morning about the Supreme Court and affirmative action. We fought that battle with Prop 209, with Proposition, I think 16 was it this past time. We fought that battle here in California many, many times, and I still am a firm believer in affirmative action. But at some point, African Americans have to get an opportunity, and they must get justice. And so this is a harm-based program that talks about the harm that's done and the responsibility to repair it. You will see many things in this report as this group has worked for many, many, many months talking about all of the difficulty that has been in terms of how you do reparations. But the good thing is that you will see is that reparations is not an aberration. It is not something that's unusual. It is not something that is unreasonable because so many have gotten reparations in this country and in the world. And it's the one thing that people realize that when you have done harm, you have a responsibility to correct it and to make sure it never happens again. We have not done reparations for African Americans. We have done them from others, but we have not done it for African Americans who have probably suffered the most harm in this country. So I'm really pleased that you're here today. Our office is available and has been available to the uh, the task force during this process, the Secretary of State's office has. I wanna thank my staff that has worked very hard uh, attending all of the hearings, making sure that I get all the reports and all the information. I'm very proud of what we've done. We are excited about the, uh, the California Legislative Black Caucus at the time when I authored the bill I was chair of the caucus. I'm grateful that they are here today and they are prepared to receive this report and to move forward with it so that we can see progress in California. Thank you so very much for being here.
5: Morning. My name is Don Tamaki. I'm one of the nine members of the task force. I'm the only task force member who's not African American and a member that has experience with the Japanese-American redress and reparations effort. I want to echo what uh, Secretary Weber just said about reparations. It is not a preposterous idea, it's not welfare, it's not a, 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 a check in the mail, it's much more than that. It goes to the very heart of what we think we are as Americans, and Japanese Americans realize that. I want to focus too on what um, Member uh, Grills had stated about the endorsement list. Two organizations started that effort, it was a, a black bar association, the John Langston Bar and the Japanese American Bar Association endorsing the concept that it is time to consider reparations in California. That list has grown as of this morning to 306 organizations. If you check it out, supportreparations.org, that list is diverse. There's a lot of Asian American support on that as well as other communities who understand that we have to trace the racial pathology that impacts all of us from whence it originated, which is sixteen nineteen and just reverberated in one form or another after two hundred and forty six years of enslavement, ninety years of Jim Crow and racial terror, and decade after decade more of discrimination, which by the way uh, snared other organiz- other uh, racial populations, so this is has to be led by African-American people, but it is distinctly American pathology that has to be addressed. So uh, I thank you for your interest in covering the story.
6: I'm Reggie jones sawyer Assembly Member. Um, I wanted Senator Bradford to join me. So when this leaves and comes to us in the legislature, both the the Senate and the Assembly, it's almost like passing the baton. Mr. Bradford and I will then have to carry it through the legislature and onto the governor's desk. Um, it is not, I'm a little emotional because today with the Supreme Court ruling, knowing that my uncle, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, was denied mm. an opportunity to go to a high school, an all-white segregated high school, and now the Supreme Court is really bringing back de facto segregation. The fact that we here in California, who's experienced Prop 209, um, Burger Marshall must be spinning his grave right now but California has an opportunity to reverse it and to do it in the right way, as others have said, because we're talking about harm, it's not race-based, it's not harm-based, and the legislature has historically done different bills, legislative and budget bills, to reverse that. So Mr. Bradford and I will then, over the next year, in, the two to, in 2024, because we both are going to term out, we're gonna work diligently to make sure we can get as much done out of the recommendations that will be given today as possible so we can begin the process of reversing the, um, the atrocities that have been foisted on African Americans here in California. Thank
7: you. Good morning, members of the press corps. My name is Amos Cleophilus Brown, born in the state of Mississippi, February the 20th, 1941 my great-great-grandfather Patrick Brown was enslaved in Franklin County Roxy Mississippi 1821 my great-great-grandfather was enslaved and I'm his descendant no California was not officially a slave state, but in American systems of law, there are crimes that are committed and one can become an accomplice in the crime. A crime has been done against the humanity of black people. And it's time for us in this nation, in this state, to admit our crime and to make sure that we atone for it and act to do something in order that we will have justice and redress for African Americans. Dr. Martin Luther King, my teacher, taught only one class in his lifetime and I was one of the eight students at Morehouse College in 1962. In that class, I remember him having said, if America has organized in a systematized way to do bad things against the Negro, it has the moral obligation to work with the Negro, to do good things in behalf of the liberation of the Negro. That sounds like to me affirmative action and reparations. And if this country persists in doing what the Supreme Court has done, we will be indeed given credence to the evil notion of one Aristotle, one of the founders of Western thought, who said that the black man of the Ethiopian was inferior because of the color of our skin, and that we will never be capable of self-governance. And we would always have to have a white man, a white woman over us. That's a lie. But that lie appears to be a lie in this nation. Mm-hmm. And I trust and hope that more people of moral conscience, of goodwill and integrity, will stand up and realize that this nation will not be able to go on as living a lie. It will go the way of ancient Rome in which the Caesars were up at the top and the Plebeians were shunted aside as African Americans have been shunted aside in this nation and in this state. So my friends, we've done our work. And in Mississippi, where I came from, they also said, if a task is once begun, never leave it till it's done. Be the labor, great or small, do it well or not at all. This task force has done the job. Well done. Well done. And all we have to do is see whether or not America and California will live up to the promises that it has made for others. Thank you very much, and I thank God for this task force and his great work. Okay. Uh, thank you, guys.
8: Um, thank you to the task force, too. So this concludes the uh, press conference, but- I uh, just wanted to let you g- know that even though the task force sunsets on July 1st, that the Charles Communication Group has been retained to assist post-sunset to address any me- media inquiries um, after July 1st, okay? Um, we will now open it up for questions. I do
6: have a question. Thank <laughs> uh, It's just one more question. That's okay. Okay, and it's in regards to what Jones always said about the Block nine. Uh, Pastor, Anderson, you know your relations or your knowledge of immaterial, uh, but you, uh, but Terry madam, but, um, Elaine Arkansas. Elaine Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, Not from Elaine I Lane, just want to know what home. it means oh. to you to, you know, orchestrate uh, legislation when you come from your family background, come from the past that... Made y'all, you know, the uh, uh, members of the Great Migration west, and were able to put together a, a, a legislation like this. What did that mean to you to stand here today to talk about? It?
1: Well, you know, I am, um, I'm always grateful and humble because, despite the
4: challenges faced in being African American and a woman
1: in this country, and having family uh, a part of the Jim Crow South and having to flee the South because my father was going to be lynched because he stood up for himself at the way station. He was a sharecropper. You know, I look back on all of that, and I'm grateful for the fact that one, California had some opportunities for me. And so it's sad today when we think about affirmative action, even though I wasn't one of the affirmative action admittance because it happened the year before I, uh, the year after I was admitted. But the fact that there were so many, support systems that's there, and I saw the growth at the university. And so to be able to be a part of progress and see regress in terms of the kinds of things that's happening now is very heartbreaking in many, many ways when we think about how far we've come and yet how far we have not come in this nation with the racial hatred and division that exists against African-Americans despite all of the contributions we have made to this country. But I think uh, my community, I think my church, I think those who, uh, who were persevered, my parents, uh, the neighbors that I had who believed in this little girl called Shirley Weber from Hope, Arkansas, and always told me every day, Girl, you're going to be something. Little girl, you're going to be somebody someday. And I never forget that. I never forget from whence I've come. And as a result of that, despite the fact that I'm Secretary of State and one of the eight constitutional officers of the state of California and so forth and so on, I never forget from whence I have come and that what I enjoy in terms of opportunity is not the norm. It is not what everybody else enjoys, and we should not get it confused because we've had a black president that that means freedom is here. Mm -hmm. That we all continue to struggle, to the least of us, as Thurgood Marshall said, to the least of us in this nation have the same opportunity as the best of us, that we still have a responsibility. So I'm honored to be able to author this legislation. I thank my colleagues here from the Black Caucus who were supportive of those efforts. I thank the governor for having the courage to sign that bill, as well as many of the other bills that we've authored to bring justice to California. And we have to keep being strong enough and persevering enough, because those who came before us did that. They didn't stop. They didn't move. And I know our time is up. There's other questions from somebody else. Okay? Ask, Senator, Senator
9: Bradford, can I ask you a question about how much you think you can achieve within the legislature? You know, how realistic do you think it is, A, that something will get approved? How far do you want
6: to get? We, we want to go, to go to as far as we can. We're going to, to be, to be, be hopeful. hopeful. We're going to be hopeful and, and as positive as possible. We know it's a challenge because we know a lot of folks over there across the street don't want to support reparations. We've seen it too many Ooh. times. Just last year, when we were trying to pass ACA three that end involuntary servitude and our prisons in California, and it was members that refused to vote on that measure. So we understand we have are the tasks in front of us, but we're going to do something substantial, not aspirational, but very substantial. Substantial. So I'm looking forward to it, and I know the Legislative Black Caucus, the 12 of us, will stand united in making sure we have substantive policy moving forward to address the wrongs here in California.
10: Does the report include um, a recommendation that the participation of African American students in public colleges and universities uh, be uh, increased or improved? And if so, um, will that withstand uh, anything,
4: uh, you know, will it withstand today's report? Well, one of the recommendations is to provide free college tuition uh, to descendants of slaves. So one of the, we have numerous uh, policy prescriptions in the areas of education that was mainly formulated by uh, Vice Chair Brown and members Don Tamaki. so if you all want to elaborate, you all can. The only note I'll say is one of the recommendations is to provide free college tuition at public colleges and universities for descendants of slaves, not for all black people, but for descendants of slaves. So to that end, that recommendation remains unaffected by SCOTUS's decision today because it's not a race-based admissions preference. Okay. We're going to take two more questions. Hold, hold, on. To... hold on, Wendy. Sorry. Sorry. Sophie,
8: did, someone, did you get your question answered?
5: Can I respond by yes. 30 seconds? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. So <coughs> one lesson is what other states can take from this, and I think the final report is a textbook pathway on how it might be replicated in other states and other locales. And uh, that report, you know, tracks these atrocities, but every locale can augment it with their own history. And so I think at least it's a start for other states. So I think that's one lesson. Last
8: question, Wendy.
5: Could
3: the governor be
1: here. Um, I, I'm not responsible for the governor,
11: but uh, he is a friend.
1: <laughs> but let me, let me simply say the purpose of this uh, effort is not, this is not a report to the governor. This is a report to the legislature and that's, that's something people should understand. The governor can only do so much. It is the legislature that has to formulate the programs as well as create the funding to, to, uh, to implement the program. So the report is appropriately being given to the legislature, and that is why you have members of the legislature that's here, that's to be a part of, and they've begun to discuss exactly what they're going to do in moving forward. And the governor's role will be to support and assist in terms of signing the legislation that comes forward.
8: Okay. Guys, due to
1: time,
10: I think we have to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, Lisa Holder, member of the California Reparations <laughs> Task Force. Um, I do want to hold up this tone that everyone here worked so hard to build. Um, this this work has been relentless. It has been meticulous. It is unassailable and it has been the work of a collective we partnered with the Department of Justice we partnered with hundreds of scholars and we partnered with the community public commenters and and participants in listening sessions who poured out their hearts and their souls who told us some of the most devastating stories of racial discrimination and who shared their pain and made themselves vulnerable to this process. And that is why this book of truth will be a legacy, will be a testament to the full story. Only half the story has ever been told. Here is a document that tells us the full story. We are not post-racial, and I would recommend to anyone who is legislating or creating laws in this country, anyone who says that we are colorblind, that we have solved the problem of anti-black animus and racism, I challenge you to read this document and try and come out with that position.
3: Thank you all. Can you, can you hold it up for one second,
10: like, yeah. One more, uh, one more. more. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost
0: 1,200
8: pages. All right. All right. We hope to see you guys at the post briefing. Thank you.
12: Great. Okay. Thank you for for getting that together. We want to call the meeting of the Reparations Commission order.
11: Uh,
12: and we have six of nine members in attendance so we will move ahead with the agenda um, uh, since we do have a quorum. Uh, the first order of business is to reflect on last, um, uh, the last meeting at um, the Northside Church. Uh, and so I'll start, by I actually took some uh, made some comments about what I heard in that meeting. Um, it, it started, first of all, it was, the attendance was better than, uh, than I initially expected when we first walked in. That was good, and people were very engaged and, and very uh, expressive. So uh, they really came there for business. Uh, the meeting started with a couple of, of attendees talking about lin, lineage-based reparations and that rather cash payments should be first and foremost, but the bulk of the attendees were really talking about the actual structural reforms that were needed. Uh, I can read a couple of comments. They wanted to address the repercussions of a restrictive social system. Um, they wanted to they asked how would reparations be funded? Um, will this commission actually con- um, continue? uh to assure that there's appropriate distribution and then that, uh the last comment was how are these reparations going to be sustained will there be a trust fund to ensure that the, whatever money is allocated remains secure and within a lockbox so uh those were really powerful comments there are comments made about uh lionizing the pioneers which we certainly agreed with and uh addressing structural issues, providing housing loans, underwriting education costs, zero interest business loans. Those are all kind of the structural issues that, that uh, we, we heard in the first two meetings. So overall, I found that there were pretty much the same uh, themes articulated in this meeting as the first two. Uh, so that gave us gave a lot of validity to, to what has been said. Uh, I'll turn it over to anyone else who wants to reflect.
13: I can speak. Um, Yeah, I do agree. I think everyone was engaged um, and there were a lot of good questions and comments um, and a lot of concerns about, um, you know, lineage-based conversation and and everything. I think uh, a lot of people also wanted, they recommended something sustainable as well for us to uh, consider um, when having these conversations. So I feel like um, that was also great as well. Um, I pretty much had the same questions that you wrote down, Dr. Ross. So um, also, I guess to, to know, I think Dr. Gwen's, um instruction or lecture was also beneficial to everyone as well. Um, and I feel like it was very educational and a lot of people learned a lot of new things about the history of St. Louis. So. Yes, thank you.
12: Yeah. Any other thoughts?
2: Yeah, I. One of the things that uh, i uh, appreciated uh as an extension to uh Gwen's, uh presentation uh was there were others uh who made comments uh who uh helped add it to that historical context uh about saint Louis and uh its issues um uh, uh, that was particularly helpful uh for me uh, learn to learn more about the uh, issues especially as it related to uh housing mm-hmm. and uh so that uh was extremely i thought it was extremely helpful good <laughs>
12: uh, yeah i absolutely concur. Other thoughts, or opinions about that? About the overall uh, meeting, rather? I just
14: have if
12: things not,
11: I'm
14: wondering. What's um, that? Um, I just have things I'm wondering about having having not been in, in attendance. The the flow of public comments, how would you categorize those? Were they questions, storytelling? um advice what how would you categorize like you know the nature of the comments uh
12: i think they were both um i think that uh they were uh, mostly uh statements to the commission uh and those statements were followed by very specific recommendations um uh there again it was peppered with questions so i don't think i think there was a bit of all of that in there
14: yeah, I'm just wondering because I, I just remember an email coming coming in, and it, it was kind of a it was a, I can't remember whether it was a critique or the question about our process. And so as we're we're going along, you know, I'm just I'm just thinking about our process. And though we outline our, our agenda, but there's all these different tools, you know. Again, I to Am I echoing?
12: Hold one second. That's me. Okay.
14: So, okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm just wondering how. How. How we're doing with our process and whether the process that we're. We're doing. I want to just be mindful that that is going to get us to where. Where we are and, and what provoked that thought is that um, you know, over Fourth of July weekend, someone started, sat down and just started telling me. All these stories about his family that go back to 1700s, right? And a lot of those stories had receipts about what actually happened to his black family in, in St. Louis. And it, it was it was just so interesting because, like, if this is if I didn't know this person just alone on human relationship alone, the power of that storytelling really was like, wow, this is unjust. (laughs) And um, I would want that family to have equity. And so, you know, a lot of of the grassroots work um, talks about storytelling as a tool for change and also seeing what needs to, to happen. And so, so I'm just, that's what I'm thinking about. All these things, like, are we are we providing ample opportunity for for that within yes. the commission yes. meeting? What do you all think?
12: The answer is yes. Uh, that that narratives are a powerful part of this commission. That we should uh, 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 respond to you know to uh, those narratives. We, they should be. Um, memorialized and uh, and amplified in whatever we produce uh, just as much as the actual questions and the statements. And so the answer is yes. We need the narratives as much as we need the other other, uh, elements of the commission uh, meetings. I I don't think anyone would disagree with that. No, I I agree
2: with that. And and I I think there's been a reasonable amount of storytelling in uh, our public uh forms um, i do agree that you know the stories do carry uh power and uh i think it would be critically important uh to be able to uh, reach back as we begin to uh determine you know next steps and you know, how we come up with recommendations to uh for the power of the stories into uh, those recommendations uh, as we go uh, forward. Uh, But no, I think you are uh, spot on, yeah.
12: Other thoughts?
15: I think that when we had our earlier discussions and and we're planning out these meetings, that was really the intent behind um, having public comments to to get those stories and so i do think that that's an important piece and as we move forward with the work they um those stories are what are helping to craft our topic of research and and really determine um a lot of what we are are looking to do and produce out of these meetings so i think that absolutely we can't do any of this without the storytelling because that's the the historical context; a lot of it is captured in the story, where it's not captured otherwise. So I think that that is. Um, but I was going to ask Commissioner Frank if you could just go a little further with that. Like, were you only just wanting to know if we were? I guess not. I'm basically saying, say more, because I'm just trying to understand. Yeah,
14: there's an idea behind my question. I'm,
15: okay.
14: I'm being a lawyer, suggestion by question. Um, well, I just had an idea about a project and about. What if we could, as the commission, provide a space for storytelling, and we use maybe like the assistance of a local journalist, and it it could be broadcast through this TV, and we just open up the channel, and it's just like a phone public comment session, and people can sit and be storytellers.
15: Are we looking for? Are you thinking
11: of particular stories, or
14: no, no, it's open mic. So it'd be like open mic, and and all it is is storytelling session. That's it. So we would open up this stream, and and that's it. That's the whole point. is like we're we're just collecting stories, and so we have this forum here, this STL TV. Right? And so it could it could be, I don't know, it could be a night and it could be like two hours and people can sign up and they tell a story and we, we sit and listen, publishes and listen and it's just an open mic to capture and record those stories. And maybe a person gets, I don't know, each person gets a little bit longer time at public comment to do that as far it's, as our process?
12: I don't see uh, that anything would prevent us from doing that. I think that would be an of an important adjunct to what's being done in actual commission meetings. And so I think that's worthy to have a greater conversation about how to do that uh, practically. Um, but I think that could be a powerful part of it. Uh, I, I wouldn't have any disagreements with that.
9: I would say I'm along those lines, because I, I agree that uh trying to open up the space that we can provide for for narratives and stories is really important, um, especially as Dr. Ross is saying as an as an adjunct or, and to augment what we're doing um during our, our public meetings and, and our planning meetings. Um Along those lines, I'm just thinking about the platforms. You know, this is certainly one of those platforms, but there are some barriers to this as well, though. I mean, people need to, I'm just thinking about some, sometimes when we have to ourselves get online for these kinds of things, it can be a little bit tricky. And then thinking about um, being inclusive of people who might not have smooth access um, to the internet, et cetera, but there are nonprofit initiatives that have these mobile studios that Um, you know, kind of they they announce where they're going to be located. It looks like a trailer oftentimes. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these looks like a trailer and people can come out and they actually get to sit in the studio for, you know, usually there's some bounded time, but it's a lot longer than what we typically provide during meetings. And it gets recorded at high quality as well. And then it can be used later on if people are willing to allow their stories to be presented. I'm just thinking, given the import of our work, I imagine that some of these organizations would actually be interested in partnering, you know, and and providing some of these kinds of things uh, at at low or no cost. Um, So just just a thought about platform.
14: Humans of St. Louis is really great at capturing narratives, right, and providing a space. But, yeah, so that's where I'm going with this.
12: Okay, well, uh, that's uh, that, that, that's on the front burner uh, for exploration. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned humans of St. Louis. I, I know people involved there, and so uh, let's, let's do some um, homework on that on that particular um, recommendation, and we'll uh, we'll we'll all kind of investigate this a little bit more. So, thank you. I'm for willing that. to work on that. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, so we'll, let's let's move on because it's 6.20, we want to get through a lot. Uh, I got home at six and I haven't eaten dinner, so this is not going to go past seven o'clock. Um, uh, so um, we know what worked. Uh, I, let's talk about what could be improved in that last session. I, I know you weren't there, uh, Kimberly, but we can talk about um, whether um, nuances that uh, prohibited free expression um, were there you know just technical issues i'll start also um the you know having the microphone only in the front i thought was um it didn't lend to the ability to um express this directly to the commission it's as if the questioners were were sending the questions to the audience um and you know we want to ensure that this is um the intent is to have information received by the commission. And having the microphone in that way, it, even though we heard everything, it was received. Uh, it wasn't um, consistent with what our, what our uh, plans were in, term, you know, in terms of um, the uh, overall um, aesthetics um, of a commission meeting. So we'll, we really would not want to have that again. We want to have the, the microphone available in the um, uh, uh, within the audience, so they can then share uh, within the audience rather than coming up into coming up to the podium. Other thoughts, other concerns about what could work better. I was second
15: that mic location. I was not at the meeting. But I did see online, and it was positioned in a way where you don't you don't get the full view. But it also um, it it just seemed different than in previous meetings, and that's a bit of an awkward position. Um, I also um, there was one more point about what could have been improved. I lost it, so I'll come back to it if we're if we're still within the session. Okay. Any other comments
12: about what could have been improved? I, I think the richness of the discussion was there. Um, uh, the content was really good, and, and so I, I really left inspired by the thought, the comments that were made. If there are no more comments, we'll go on to the next uh, topic, next agenda topic. My computer's working so I can read everything now. Uh, And uh, we, uh, the next agenda topic reads research topics. Um, And so um, I I, I want to take um, um, kind of take a little time to think about before we go into research topics, um, I want to get back to what we heard from that second meeting. Uh, about, and it delves into uh, the research topic. A strong statement was made about us needing greater representation on the commission. Uh, great representation, uh, uh, some uh, um, gentleman spoke of the need to have, uh, you, know, um, you know, more business leaders and economists. Uh, um, in fact, you really nailed that. I absolutely agree wholeheartedly we need to have an economist. And, you know, there are others who who could represent different areas uh, of thought. Uh, Those people, um, obviously the commission is working under the, you know, that um, mayoral mayoral authority. And and so the nine people were there, and there's really no, won't be a, a precedent for adding new members, but they certainly could occupy working groups. And so I want us to think about who we would want in those working groups. And then based on how we would extend those working groups, then we can talk about what research should we uh, explore. So thoughts about work, about work, about uh, additional uh, members for working groups apart from the nine of us. Uh, and but, we, should, we shouldn't come up with names. I just, want I, I think we should just talk about uh, generic uh, positions or generic uh, uh, of, um, areas of of uh, that need that where we need expertise. I always suggest educator,
11: um, an educator, maybe someone
15: who who works. Um, I'll just say educator, someone within that
11: background
15: who's not at the higher academic level, such as, you know, where you and Dr. are, but perhaps um, that could speak to, if we're really thinking in terms of researching the educational angle and how closing these schools, for example, in neighborhoods and just that impact, what that looks like, what that has, the ripple effect there um, what they see on that secondary education
12: level and, and really early childhood as well. Okay, great. So we're going to talk about childhood education, impact of school closings, so many other policy issues. I think that's a great idea. And so. Just, uh, just
9: to have, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I, I was just. Uh, <clears throat> just noting just to have out there it, it seems like if we're looking to other commissions and thinking about well how did they bound the areas and, and think about the kinds of the equivalent of the working groups that we're talking about now i think the big four that we see everywhere and i think this really overlaps with uh De point just now is um the emphasis there seems to be an emerging consensus that the emphasis should be on on health wealth housing and education are are kind of the four um, kind of umbrella areas that people have been working in. Um, So certainly we just mentioned education and um, it doesn't mean we need to follow those, but just if we want to think about um, fairly standardized um, areas, those might be some to at least begin with.
12: Yeah, I I think that I think those categories are great. And um, so we already talked about education and and, uh, we can expand that with a working group more than we don't we can have more than two people more than one person uh, I, I started out by saying we need an economist or someone who really can, really can talk about uh, the uh, uh, financial consequences of, um, of, of um, rigid segregation uh, and, and a uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, disadvantages health is going to be a key part and i was asked to talk about health at the next meeting and i'll just spend 10 minutes introducing that topic, but we can certainly use additional members uh, who, are, who can talk about health, uh, particularly community health, and housing. When you mentioned housing, one person who really came to mind is Chris Cremeyer, who is the CEO of Beyond Housing. Uh, I think someone who could speak to that. I mean, there are others who can speak to that, but my goodness, he I, um, has such a track record. and. Um, of actual uh, knowing the subject and actually living it and producing. So I, I like those you know, education, uh, wealth, health, housing. I think those categories are great, David.
9: Yeah. And, and just two quick comments on that too is, one, as, as I was saying that, I, I realized that um, an area at least I personally would want to propose potentially augmenting our list would be um, something around the criminal legal system. Um, And so just to have that out there as as a potential fifth one. And then the other thing, as you were just mentioning housing, um, I I have a colleague in in the sociology department I'm in uh, named Elizabeth Corver-Glenn, and Elizabeth would be willing to to work on a working group if we wanted to. But she's also a good example, because I could imagine ways of addressing housing that really focus on kind of flashpoint policies that affect large numbers of people in a very identifiable way. So thinking about Mill Creek Valley is like a a really clear example of that. Um, But Elizabeth focuses on kind of like daily quotidian um, practices of real estate appraisers and how they. Um, in effect, reproduce racist and racial inequalities just through the daily practice of that field, so just appraisals, and it's just an example of something. It's not invisible. Obviously, if you're impacted by this, you you feel where, where this happens, but it's just kind of the daily practice that isn't something that people just reach out and identify as like this is the heart of the problem. But but it seems like a good example of something where we have people in a working group who are really attuned to those daily practices. The the person you mentioned from Beyond Housing would probably be another person that could really be attuned to that, as well as people who can think historically about these large policy moments like Mill Creek Valley where, you know, neighborhoods would be raised or erased, et cetera. And so just just to make a uh, an appeal for trying to think about a combination of people who can hit on kind of both sides of that.
12: Appreciate that, Elizabeth. What was her last name?
9: Uh, Corver Glenn. I'll pu- I'll put it in the chat so you can spell it. Thanks.
14: So I, I have I I just want to give some clarification or or to say something. So I think it's definitely imp- important to identify these these areas of focus, but I question whether it's necessary that the person spearheading or occupying the group are experts and I come at this from I, I remember um being just and I say this like happily admonished by Kayla about language here which is like I said something like oh maybe needs to get evil. and she said well I'm an abolitionist but well, I, I share that perspective too in in my approach so like I'm, I'm thinking broader about the culture of our commission what it is we're talking about like, Right, We're talking about reparations, which are like tools. It's a, it's a tool to bring equity in the face of a, a oppression, of a oppressive system. And so they say that you, you, you'll never be able to dismantle the master's house. using the master's tool. So there's all these tools here and there's barriers. So I, I feel like a lot of this conversation is focused on like all of us pretty much look, I, I are pretty educated elite. Here, so I, I feel like um, some of the people that are probably most experiencing the the feel the feel of inequity are not in this room right now and not able to curate what this looks like. Right, so I feel like when it comes to diversity of representation, that we need to take a look at that. And we need to take a look at things like i feel like it's very important how we set up the space for our meetings do we want this to look like a traditional board meeting all right is that is that going or or does this look can this look like something else can this look different right because we're trying to unravel something and also correct something. Um, so from, from that, from that perspective, I think there's definitely experts that have been studying things and information for them, but yes, let's divide the areas, but also let's think about who needs, who do we need to tap for these, for these, um, conversations. Who can we think about some different types of leadership, uh, so, um, in these areas?
12: So community voices are critical.
14: Mm-hmm. Uh,
12: I would agree uh, wholeheartedly, and I, I, I would, I gather that we will want to have community voices on all these different work groups,
11: mm-hmm.
12: uh, just a community group. But uh, they they should influence, uh, or should be able to impart uh, their 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 uh, thoughts and backgrounds into every single group. I, I they really should be uh, the thrust of what we do when we create the groups. I also think that there should
14: be some leaders. That there should be some leadership opportunity there for the community voices um, that all of our leaders should not necessarily be academia um, professional experts so i'd like like to see us have some diversity in that that regard
12: yeah so community presence uh, community leaders i think yes we would all i think we would all agree with that thank you um so, uh, any other broad groups, broad groups that we should focus on? We we can discuss. We have we'll have some time to talk about uh, how we're going to constitute those those working groups. So I want to make sure that we've thought about the broad yeah. category.
14: Okay, this is what I've kind of written down, and we might have, this might overlap. I've got financial, environment. Um, and we already covered health and education, the public ser- service realm, like elected officials and um, nonprofit realm, realm, and then civic realms.
12: Uh, so you were talking about groups, or are you just talking about people who should be in the groups?
14: I'm talking about categories like areas okay. in which all of it in which reparations. And inequities lie. So we have things that rest in the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Um, we have things resting in the civic influence in that civic realm. So I'm looking at those those categories that I I think merit examination
12: merit scrutiny. Okay, I understand that, uh, but we we really have a limited uh, workforce to deal with. We, we're not going to be able to accommodate. Multiple working groups, if we're really going to have some uh, thoughtful discussion, I think it's best that we have four to five categories and that we collapse I, everything that you said i think i agree, agree. Mm-hmm. i think we can with those so most of those can be collapsed into those five categories. Uh, you added one that I did put there that was uh, environmental, so we have. Essentially, uh, education, uh, co- you know, economics, financial, two, health, three, housing, four, criminal justice, environmental, then you mentioned community presence and the leaders. I don't consider the second, uh, a, an additional group because that uh, will be woven throughout all of the groups.
14: Um, yeah, want to throw it out for discussion. Yeah. Hello, this the same, so. Uh, Let's
12: go about excellent. that.
14: Definitely up for discussion and we can whittle it down from there. Anybody else have thoughts on it? So, I agree with um, with those six
15: areas, and I do think that community leaders fall within all of them, as mm-hmm. do those that are considered the experts.
16: Mm-hmm.
15: Um, I Because we want to have, I, I, I feel like a panel discussion versus a speaker um,
11: presentation. Would allow
15: for us to have two or three there, so that you have represented those groups. You have your community leader. You have your um, <clears throat> expert. And no, I'm using that word, but you know, in, in their own way, community leaders are experts too on the ground. So I don't want to take away from that as well. But I think to have a two or three person panel,
14: yeah,
15: that would also help with collapsing some of this because, to Dr. Russell point, we can't. It'll get too big after a while. Oh, yeah. yeah, but at the same time, within our working groups and within our our speaker presentations, our panels, we can we can really touch on all that. You know, we can present in that way. Um, but I think community voices are, are the driving voices for sure of a lot of this, and I, I think in concert with the academia as well to kind of balance. So. Um, I think they can work together, kind of a both-and situation. Yes.
11: Good.
12: Good good discussion. Great discussion. Um, So, I think we should uh, look at these categories that we have. We'll we'll share that. And then we have to spend the next uh, few weeks really thinking about how to populate these, these working groups. Once they're populated, then we can ask what specific research questions should we pose, uh, in addition to what we are going to be compiling in the actual commission meetings. So I think it's going to follow fairly organically how we do this. Mm-hmm. Is, everyone, is there a con- agreement on that, or thoughts about that?
2: I I I certainly agree with that, uh, and also the uh, premise of not uh, expanding. I work too far and wide, and it becomes a, a wait for us to get to where we need to be.
12: Yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree, Reverend. Become unwieldy. Okay, well, good. That's good discussion. Excellent discussion. Um, now let's move on to speakers and. Uh, We had already talked about these two major speakers that we want, uh, Walter Johnson and Colin Gordon, Um, and uh, trying to ensure that we can get those top speakers will be critical before we will move on. So um, I I want us to be careful in in really thinking about how many speakers um, – our goal is is not to – have multiple major presentations to the public. Uh, our, 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 our charge is to listen to the public, uh, not not lecture to the public. And so I would I, my personal recommendation is that we really not have an extensive list of speakers. We want to have you know maybe two uh, really deeply thoughtful leaders in the field, and then we can have a, a couple. You know all all of us can you know come in you know in our small areas of expertise the way gwen did at the last session i think that works better um there was a uh a, a name placed on the agenda uh baldwin as a potential speaker um let me speak against that uh DeVarian baldwin is just a remarkable person thoughtful a uh, uh, crafty highly uh, energetic sophisticated uh, a true scholar but a scholarship is uh, tends to be uh, not as expansive as, as we need for this this commission this t- tends to be sometimes uh, uh, too uh, directionally focused We want individuals who if when we bring in scholars we want individuals who really, to look across the entire landscape and, and speak to that. Uh, and so that's why, again, I mean, he's a great speaker, but we, we don't have time for a whole lot of speakers. And that's why I would, I, I, if we can get Colin Gordon and, uh, and Walter Johnson, I don't think we would need any more than that, nor will we have time for any more than that. Other thoughts about that?
14: I, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know why it's recommended, but as a, uh, I trust your, your scrutiny. What about um, Christopher Tinson over at SLU? Uh,
12: I think it's probably good to have somebody who's, who's local. We said, we said that at the inception of this, that we really want to tap into our local experts. And so I think that's much more of a reasonable
14: option. Um, I don't know and I, I say all of that with without uh, I know his name came up on the initial list and so he has his angle and he would be he would be modest enough to, to, to be like, Well, yeah, you got this person on, on the short list and I would I would tender the tender things over to this person, but he's chair of black studies yeah. over flu. Great tuned
12: in. yeah i I think that I think that's reasonable, and I think it's important that we have a you know although we don't really want to have more than two uh, two major speakers, we have to have to have a contingency plan because some of these speakers just may not pan out for lots of reasons
9: and and maybe along those lines another way to um broaden our speaker base a little bit without it taking up more of our meetings. As I, I think I had mentioned this before, but another professor of black studies in the area um, is Jeff Ward, who is at WashU, but he has co-taught with Walter Johnson. Um, they, they have kind of coordinated classes at Harvard and at WashU. And so they work together really well, and um, so if if Walter is coming to speak, I'm sure he and Jeff could coordinate, and we'd have kind of a – I know Walter is local to St. Louis in a lot of ways, very close to the community, but Jeff is is in the community as well, Um, and and they might work well together um, without Mm -hmm. it taking up two separate meetings.
12: Uh, I think that's great. I'd love to see the chair of Black Studies at SLU and WashU. Uh, I think that's – yeah, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? Okay. Um so we now have, we really have to um uh try to get commitments from uh Walter Johnson and, and Colin Gordon uh, within the next month. Uh if they aren't if we can't nail them down by the end of August, then uh we just move on to the people that we have here locally.
11: Uh, uh-
15: I'm sorry, Dr. Ross, I just want, <clears throat> excuse me, to add that in the outreach I've been on, on communications that Dr. Mitchell has sent out to prospective speakers and um, calendars are filling up quickly. And, and so it would be helpful on our end to have dates. Yes. And that has been some of the, the hang up as well with some of the speakers uh, for the, especially the ones who do, who are in academia. A few of them have responded that for the summer, they're, you know, they're pretty much tied up doing whatever they're doing, but they're opening their calendars for the fall. So we don't have dates to offer for the fall. So I think as a commission, we really need to be mindful of that. As we are wanting to have speakers come in, and even on the local level, we just need to have dates to offer um, as well, and just keeping that in mind.
12: Uh, Yes. and so, at the beginning, um, I, I know we had operated under this premise that uh, many of us knew Walter Johnson and Colin Gordon and could get them to commit. We knew the commission dates; they were already there. So, um, so we now have to just go back and and present specific dates uh, to these two preferred speakers. I shouldn't say preferred speakers, but two top to the first speakers and then go from there. Um, and so um, Vernon is the one who knew Walter Johnson and could get that contact. And so is, Vernon's not on the call. So we'll have to no, follow up with Vernon and and state, you know, we, you know preference, you know, would be the September and October meeting. By November, we really want to start wrapping up and collating information. Uh, for a, a report which, which we want to share with the public in the latter three months, so um, so we really, I frankly, it's my recommendation that we really have those have September and October for those major speakers. We we can do the other speakers that, um, maybe a, a, at another time.
8: So perhaps
15: we, Dr. Rothman, I suggest that maybe we just take a vote and and have that motion made and move forward with that as a motion as an action for us as a commission.
12: I think that's great. So are you making that, what motion do you want to do you want to make the motion? <laughs> um,
15: I make the motion that we as a commission vote on the format for the next three
12: meetings
15: um, for four, August with well, Dr. Ross, your office, correct? Presenting uh,
12: uh, July.
15: July. Okay, so, so August through December that we. We set a format, and we agree to that format, and move forward with our speakers, our process.
12: I'm not so sure I'm following that.
15: I know that wasn't very clear, so let me retract. I make the motion that we vote on a format for our meetings, August through December, and that we use those meetings to then go ahead and set our research and to work the remainder of the the time that we have, so January through March. So we're basically, so we don't keep having these discussions around speakers and what we're going to be presenting and we can actually get to work. Can we just agree with your recommendation that we focus in on the, on the speaker format that you suggested that we've discussed and move forward? So we don't have another meeting of how are we gonna do this?
12: So a, a friendly amendment would be to highlight September and October uh, as the uh, uh, times for the two major speakers. Okay. I wouldn't want to ha- I, I don't think we should try to do anything later than that. Uh, do you accept that amendment?
15: To wrap by October, to wrap with the October meeting?
12: No, no, to have the two major speakers in either September or October. Okay, I accept that amendment. Okay, so uh it has been moved by De La Shea uh that we really structure uh the full, uh the next upcoming meetings uh, up until January to accommodate speakers but um, uh reserve the next uh the months of September and October for our major speakers uh so there's been moved is there a second okay, all in favor, say aye or raise your hand aye Aye. aye. Any opposed? No exemptions. Okay, so it is so moved. Great. Great. I think that's uh, that's good to clear that up. Thank you, DelaChay. Which really gets us into the last part of the meeting. Now, uh, the last five minutes is to talk about. The meeting dates and uh, locations for September and October. Uh, on the um, initial uh, calendar, we actually stated we want to go to South City, South County, or South City is a city, uh, South City, for the, uh, the next two meetings after uh, Je- after July. And so, any, and, and um, in terms of dates and locations um hold on a second let me put a calendar so we're talking about september um and you no know, we talked about um mo- uh, balancing them weekday and weekend so we can get a different um slice of the of the pop of the populace um to that
14: point, may I add?
12: Uh, if
15: we felt that that weekend session was helpful in terms of turnout. Does that seem since we've had a couple of meetings where we've had them during the week and we've had weekend to kind of see does that, is that helpful?
12: Uh, I thought the turnout was relatively uh, comparable at the meeting on, on the weekend. I. I I thought the response, I thought the questions were deeper, um, and I thought the engagement was, was richer, but the turnout was I thought was comparable.
15: Okay. Want to consider another weekend and weekday for these two meetings, Perhaps.
13: Yes, I think because August is a Saturday meeting um, on August 26th, so I think alternating was fine, and I, I would like to see how the august meeting turns out because it's the one that we had on the last this past weekend where we tested it out um there was a bunch of things going on in the city so it kind of affected the turnout um so i feel like if less distractions we can kind of get a good sense on how a weekend would actually turn out without you know all the events that were going on yeah i agree with that
12: um we may not be able to, to confirm dates right now.
14: I, I just want to forewarn. Um, we, we should we should probably check the, um, the the calendar, the city calendar for that weekend in August. And here's why. Um, the St. Louis turns up with festivals in August. It's is heavy. It's really 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 thick. That's what I tell everybody about. Like I know. I tell people it's the best time of the year to come to St. Louis, so we could we could stay with that for the sake of, um, turnout. um, maybe consider a Sunday instead, but I like that all I, we should, we should double check. I'm, I'm
15: for that meeting when we did the planning for it. We know that we know festival of nations is one thing going on that weekend, but we, we talked about it at the meeting where we decided on that date mm-hmm. to narrow it down to that date with consideration okay. um, to those items, but okay. we did, we did have an in an, an depth conversation around that.
14: Oh, no sense in rehashing.
12: Okay. So did we come, I'm sorry. Did we come up with a date in September?
14: I, I've got, hmm. I don't believe we, have I
2: don't, I don't believe we
12: did. I, I didn't we think didn't, we did.
14: No, got we, a planning, we got a planning meeting on the calendar for September 13th. So, my assumption is that the meeting is
12: the following 15th. Wednesday. Uh, or okay, the following Wednesday, the 20th of September.
14: Well, we have a planning meeting for September 13th. Well, the planning meetings are the
15: second Wednesday of every month. So, that was to get them on our calendar. the The public meeting doesn't necessarily take place a week after. Mm-hmm. But the planning meeting is set for the second Wednesday of every month.
12: So I have been so looking at the calendar and so we haven't we we have to agree on either uh, 16th or the uh or the 23rd maybe a weekend uh, because you know as uh, Bill just said we want to just test out and make sure that without a lot of competing events we can do a weekend. So I I I would recommend that we consider the 16th or the 23rd of September.
14: Well we we did the um the weekend and we're doing the weekend office so i thought we were alternating from and like for me personally as a commissioner the weekends are are a huge burden okay
12: Okay. that's that's reasonable i'm 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 okay so um so uh, let's let's throw out some dates then
9: if we wanted to stay consistent with our weekday kind of last week of the month would something like the 27th work for folks? That's the last Wednesday in September.
12: I think September 27th is a good idea. And we'll put it somewhere in South City. Any, any, anyone opposed to September 27th? There are going to be, we're going to have exceptions. We're all going to, we're busy people. We can all be I think
13: the twenty-seven sounds good. Okay. Yes, I'm
12: fine. Okay, good. That is confirmed. Do we want to do October, or do we want to just hold off on that?
14: Can we get
15: October? That would that would um, be helpful for the speakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for trying to to get speakers. Yeah.
12: Okay. I I would agree.
14: Fourth Saturday.
12: A Saturday.
14: Fourth uh, Saturday.
12: Fourth Saturday. That would be twenty-eighth. October 28th, how does that
13: sound? I won't be here, but that don't don't rely the decision on me.
15: I won't be available that weekend either, but I can absolutely help with the planning of it.
13: What about the prior weekend,
12: 21st? I won't be there 21st. I will be out of town.
15: Well, Dr. Ross, for the one where you know you won't be present, we definitely need to make sure that Chair Reed is available
11: okay
12: so um we
15: can maybe hold off um if need be if the if the 28th is not what we'll go with and if it's the 21st tentatively um we'll try to connect with chair reed for that one yeah
12: yeah i would like to be here if we have a major speaker in october so i okay yeah i I would to find some date that accommodate uh as many of us as possible
15: so if the
12: so 28th the majority so let's say uh tentative 28th and we'll talk with uh kayla sounds good yep okay. okay uh well good i think that we have um completed our agenda in
11: a
14: oh. timely in terms of location, I did. So we discussed uh, possible locations, um, St. Mary's and St. Cecilia's, and, and, and I did reach out to St. Cecilia and inquire about their spaces. So um, they don't have anyone there to assist with setup. So there, there would be some labor involved with that. So they're like, yeah, we don't have anybody there to help set up chairs. So if they can't set up chairs, we probably won't have audio visual. But they have a big gymnasium where they they have the fish fry every year, and that and that holds holds quite a bit of people. And they somebody does plug in audio visual. I just don't know that the acoustics would be. Yeah, the
12: acoustics. I, I know St. Mary's acoustics aren't great. Uh, we just had a Missouri Foundation for Health.
14: St. Uh, Cecilia. St. Cecilia.
12: Okay, you're talking about St. Cecilia. Yeah.
11: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know
12: that church. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's reasonable. I do know that we talked about the machi- uh what is the machinist hall uh on uh, on you
14: know, Shoto. You're right.
11: Yeah,
14: thought-
17: um, Yeah, and
14: then then it flowed from we were trying to get closer to to like uh Dutchtown, so further set um deeper into South City.
12: Okay, so um, I, I don't think we should write off the place in Shoto. I think that could bring in a very good sector, and then we can move something. I agree a little bit more in Dogtown.
14: Oh no, no. So Dogtown would not be <laughs> the South City. So what we had discussed was like possibilities in South City. So I, I, I agree that I would look into it, and I think I believe Kayla said that she would look into um, Saint Mary's and also um, what's um, the community center down there that was also thrown out as a contender to move into the the area where we're basically at the heart of the black where the part of the black community lives in south city that was the the, the logic in the discussion
12: okay um yeah. then we'll have to just wait uh and have you confirm all that with kayla then um because we need, you know we, we obviously don't have a specific, a specific location yet is that agreeable that yes. certainly by the end of this month we'll be able to identify a particular uh, location in, in both location in both areas yeah
14: mm-hmm. so the see yeah so the feedback from say uh from them so she said she had to check with the priest there but it, it's 125 dollars for the space okay so i'm just bringing back the information okay yeah
11: uh-huh.
12: Yeah, uh, costs like that are nominal. Uh, we will. I, I'm confident we can get that taken care of. Okay, so soon. That's that's the only uh, plan, major plan going forward. Uh, two major plans going forward: secure the dates of the two speakers, um, and then uh, secure the locations in South City. And hopefully, we'll have that done in the next few weeks. The next. Um, Okay, so we're we're set then for our next meeting um which will be next week. That, what's that what's that date? The twenty-sixth. Twenty sixth. Absolutely. On my calendar, twenty sixth. In that case I'll see you all on the twenty sixth at New Um uh New Northside Church. Okay.
2: Officially adjourned.
12: Okay, is there a motion to adjourn? Motion. So move. Okay, all in favor? Aye. Say aye. Aye. We are officially adjourned. Thank you all. Thank you.
17: See See you all. Thanks, all. Good night. Calls for reparations grow louder across the Caribbean. Will the U.K. apologize and pay for the historical impact of slavery on former colonies in the West Indies? Or, as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says, is unpicking history not the right way forward? I'm Andrea Sankian. Today's Newsmaker is the call for reparation. Slavery and violence defined British imperial control in the Caribbean. As early as 1629, the British brought people taken largely from West Africa and enslaved them to work on sugar plantations for hundreds of years. Now that slavery funded the European Industrial Revolution as well as its future wealth and development. The tiny island of Barbados became known as Little England and was one of Britain's most valuable colonies. An estimated half a million slaves were used there to farm and process sugarcane, known as white gold. The system of slavery in Barbados was so efficient, it was used to institute one of the first slave labor codes, a legal framework England then exported to other colonies, including the United States.
13: Barbados is the incubator. Barbados is the experiment that it could be done.
12: So this island is unique Not only for its beauty
6: and all the contemporary positive features, but this is where the greatest, the the greatest experiment in human terror in the modern era was first put in place in Barbados.
17: Now, almost 200 years since the abolition of slavery and 60 years after independence from the UK, Barbados has become a leading voice in the Caribbean movement for reparations. Years of hard work by activists and academics is gaining traction. A national reparations task force was created in 2012, followed by the Caribbean community, or CARICOM's, groundbreaking 2014 reparations plan. And recently, Barbados made headlines for targeting wealthy Britons for individual reparations, including actor Benedict Cumberbatch and member of parliament Richard Drax, whose family still runs its 17th century plantation in Barbados. But in spite of the headlines, real progress is slow. In the U.S., two federal reparations bills have stalled. The Church of England has identified ways that one of its arms profited from enslavement and set aside a $120 million fund to address racial inequality. King Charles has agreed to a study of the monarchy's already documented ties to the slave trade, but Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, has rejected calls for reparations. Meanwhile, the leader of Barbados says to ignore this is wrong.
18: And we feel that we have a moral obligation to be able to start to deconstruct the racism in all of its forms. It Doesn't only come in laws that are still there, but it also comes in ways in which people undermine democracy, in ways in which people prevent people from voting, in ways in which people make judgments about people because of color or race. And we've got to work hard to deconstruct it, and we have to also recognize that when many countries became independent, um, there was no development compact or development package left for us to finance education, healthcare, or any of these issues. And, and we have to ask ourselves, can we accept that the Industrial Revolution was financed by the blood, sweat, and tears and money of developing countries, and at the same time causes the climate crisis today, and it's a case of double jeopardy. So we had the wealth taken from us, and now we are facing the consequences
17: of that wealth's impact on the earth's climate. It's wrong, just simply wrong. So can reparations compensate for the torture of slavery as well as its damaging legacy? And if so, how can it be fairly applied? Well, joining me now to debate that and more are from London. Esther Sanford-Cose, she is Coordinator General of Stop the Mangamizi Campaign, which works on getting the UK government to pass reparations bills. From Durham, North Carolina is William Darity Jr. He is a Samuel Dubois Cook Distinguished Professor at Duke University and also author of From Here to Equality. And from Norwich in the UK, David Campbell-Bannerman is the Chairman of the Freedom Association and the former conservative member of European Parliament thanks all so much for being with me William I'll start with you you know it used to feel like the more time that passed the less likely it was that substantial reparations would ever be kind of agreed to and properly distributed but people seem to have real confidence in this Caribbean movement tell us what's been your experience what has it shown you do you think something will be agreed to here and will it have an actual impact on communities today
19: Well, I think the level of conversation in the present moment is uh, more dramatic and profound than any level of discussion of this issue in my lifetime and perhaps from the standpoint of the U.S. historical record since the Reconstruction era in the United States. So I think that the possibility lies out there for the establishment of comprehensive reparations uh, to a degree that it has not in in any previous moment.
17: Tell us, So, I mean, where have you seen, uh, if at all, have you seen, you know, models for reparations actually work? Where has it been effectively applied?
19: Well, there are a number of uh, precedents, but uh, perhaps the um, most significant precedents uh, involve the German government's payment of reparations to the victims of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. as well as payments that were made to the state of Israel but also in the U.S. context, perhaps most notable is the payments that were made to Japanese-Americans who had been subjected to mass incarceration by the United States government uh, in the course of World War II.
17: Okay. Esther, let me turn to you. You are actually a a citizen of Barbados, so I'd actually first like you to help us understand the legacy of slavery in Barbados from more of a personal standpoint if you can how does the damage as well as the discrimination and racism how does it manifest today so much so that reparations are needed to properly address the wrongs.
16: so one of the biggest areas of injury that has impacted people like myself is what's known as the injury of peoplehood and nationhood in the sense that we are a dichotomized dispersed people who now no longer carry the identities of our forebears, our foreparents, and who, as a result of that, experience varying degrees of not only statelessness, but also um, impacted citizenship, where citizenship is always a second or a third class citizenship, because there isn't a recognition yet uh, about our own sovereignty as African human beings. We can be recognized as being minority ethnic in the images of our colonial oppressors in terms of the nations that they have formed, but linking us to our true power base, uh, which is a global power base, is something that is severely impacted. Anti-African sentiments, which is known as Afriphobia. Uh, anti-African prejudice and discrimination is still very prevalent even in the Caribbean Mm. where there is huge amounts of colorism and discrimination based on your skin tone, you know, your actual phenotype, how close you look to Europeans or how close you are to your African heritage and ancestry.
17: Okay, now I know you are obviously a proponent of reparations. I want to come back to you in a minute about how you think uh reparations should be decided whom they should be paid out to in a minute but first i need to get to david and david you need to tell us i mean why the idea of paying reparations for slavery is is somewhat farcical to you
20: well i think it's a ridiculous idea i'm afraid i I mean a lot of this is very historical it's hundreds of years ago and if you look at british history you could go back and say well should we you know be suing the italians to for roman slaves or Seeing the French for, for Norman slaves. I mean, the Normans, the Saxon slaves actually built Durham Cathedral in, in England. So, I just think the notion of this is is nonsense. I mean, slavery is obviously horrible, and it was a horrible chapter, but a lot of horrible things happened hundreds of years ago. Being hung, drawn, and quartered for treason was, was one of them, for example. Uh, and I, I just think this is 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 victimhood. It doesn't help anyone. And reparations don't have a happy history. They forced it on Germany after the First World War, and it led directly to the Second World War. It's not a happy uh, instrument uh, either.
17: But David, what about Williams' other other examples of when reparations really have worked, and they have given people a genuine sense of justice? Not least uh, Germany paying reparations and supporting those that suffered in the Holocaust post-World War Two.
20: Well, I'm more sympathetic to that, but that's modern day, you know, there's are living people we're, we're talking about, uh, there's no living uh, s- uh, slave traders, you know, for hundreds of years ago, obviously. Uh, no, I am more sympathetic to that. Uh, I think they were very special measures after the war. And there was a special case because people were destitute because been, their homes had been stolen uh, and their families destroyed. So that, that, I think, was very different. But what we're talking about here is, you know, going back to um, Caribbean uh, slavery. Uh, and I think that's a very different case. A question I would ask, by the way, is are you going to go after the African tribes who sold many of these slaves to the traders? And I'm, I'm very serious about this. The Foreign Secretary of Britain uh, is from Ghana originally. And he was telling me that his family would ensure that, that the slave traders got... their rival tribes, uh, and and sent them to the Caribbean. And it was a power struggle. And are they going to have to pay reparations as well? I mean, that's not clear.
17: Okay. Uh, William, I'll have you address this uh, to begin with. Not only is this so far in the past, but the victimhood has almost become diluted over the centuries, according to David. And also, he seems to feel everyone was somehow complicit, including tribes, back in, in West Africa.
19: Oh, I I don't doubt the latter statement. Uh, I've thought about this more in the context of the United States, which is perhaps somewhat different from the Caribbean case. And I don't want to try to speak authoritatively about the Caribbean case. Uh, But in the United States, it's not just a question of the history of slavery as having an impact on the lives of descendants of individuals who were enslaved in the United States specifically. Uh, It's also a set of policies that were conducted by the United States government that maintained the capacity of white Americans to accumulate significant amounts of wealth Mm. to the disadvantage of black Americans. Uh, One example is in the 19th century, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the federal government provides one and a half million white households with 160 acre land grants in the western territories under the homestead act of 1862 approximately 10 percent of the white population in the united states in contrast black americans who emerged from slavery 40 acre land grants as restitution and did not receive those at all in the 20th century The federal government in the United States shifts away from asset building predicated on land distribution to home ownership. And then it does that in a highly discriminatory fashion, both through the phenomenon of redlining, as well as the unfair application of the home buying provisions of the GI Bill in -hmm. the aftermath of World War II. So we are not talking about the 19th century alone. We are talking about a recent historical record
17: very recent many would argue it continues very strongly today but let me come to esther then because david was obviously making the point that there's this is all history going hundreds of years back and as i said he seems to think it's been so diluted over the years that you can't really determine fairly who the actual victims are and who's responsible because again everyone he says was was complicit including africans themselves back in uh, the slaves native countries so how do you determine really who who should have to take responsibility
16: well this is a matter of justice okay we can determine this but we haven't got the time to go into this program of all the research that's been done that can identify how uh, the impact of uh, wealth dispossession, landlessness continues to mar the lives of people of African heritage and ancestry in the Caribbean and across the, the diaspora. Now, when people are opposed to reparations and they say this is just about the past, it's because they are very, to be quite frank with you, ill-informed and uneducated as to what the arguments of reparationists are. So we base our claims to repair. let's let's use that language of repair on the basis of the contemporary impact of harmful actions and wrongdoings when it is in the case in the UK we were all paying back taxes that were generated as a result of the debt that was built up that Paid uh, enslavers and the enslaved got nothing. This shows you that this is a contemporary reality. And this paying back of taxes happened, uh, you know, up until 2015. So it means myself, all of my family members were implicated in having to pay back a debt that was built up as a result of compensating people that enslaved my forebears. This is totally wrong. And the perspective of reparationism
20: Andrea? Bates, uh, David, um,
17: yeah. Go ahead.
20: Look, so, so, Esther, this country, Britain, actually um, stopped the slave trade, and it lost thousands of lives, soldiers and sailors, fighting the slave trade, and we only just paid off the debt in 2015. That's pretty contemporary. No. Um, no, you that's know, the, what saying, no, actually, actually, you're you're you're, you're wrong. wrong. That it. went
16: to enslavers. Go reporting. and check your yeah. facts. Totally misinforming well,
20: people. Respect. Totally misinforming you know, people. I've been farming for ten years. I'm i i quite a well known on history, and, uh, I'm and sorry. so am I. <laughs> With respect. Uh, yeah. And well, yeah, so. but, yeah. So but, the point you know, is the british did not the british the
11: british sorry, only
16: do things
20: in their please. own
16: self-interest I okay? me, and
20: Pete- can i just say you're, you're ignoring the fact the united kingdom and the eu pay a lot of money in development aid to barbados and the caribbean 75 million over five years that's pounds just britain alone but the eu does as well so we do make a big contribution we don't need reparations on top of that and do you, are you really happy with a victim culture where you're eff- eff- effectively enslaving people to hand enslaving out who? and
16: that's rich coming from you. I'm not enslaving anybody. And actually, you, let's not, no,
20: no hold, on hold, on a a hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. White slaves as well, it's, what about no, one point? No, no,
16: what we're talking about are those that experienced
20: chattel by slavery. Arab slaves. Arab slaves was was, you know, the, the Arab slave trade... Is, <laughs> is, okay,
17: I, I don't want to get too far off track. And like I said, when we speak over each it's, other, it's, it's very difficult it's, to hear sometimes.
16: You're bringing in red herrings. Red herrings.
17: Yeah, David, I mean, well, up there up is point. an issue here well, yeah, with yeah, the historical fact historical that the British government made the efforts and fulfilled this promise to pay back a debt to the slave owners themselves. This is actually true. That debt was finally finished paid off, pay, being paid off in 2015. Yet when it comes to paying back those who suffered the actual slavery and did the work, there is no compensation. So is your, is your argument then that the, the UK government in other forms is, is kind of paying compensation by giving aid to countries like Barbados? Because they also remember, they're not taking a handout necessarily. This is supposed to be development aid that helps with the infrastructure of schools, hospitals, and, and things that the country needs for its development after that was hindered through the institution of slavery.
20: There is an argument. If they were in Africa now, would they be better off? I mean, you know, I mean, how are you going to calculate this? Um, I, 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 you know, it, it gets very silly. That's the point. It's, it's how do you calculate reparations? OK, let,
17: let me just come back to William. Like I said, I want to give everybody equal time. William, I know, I know you have some thoughts on what you've been hearing, so do go ahead.
19: Well, you know, the statement that folks might have been better off uh being enslaved and then having their descendants live in the United States or in the Caribbean nations than having point. stayed in Africa is uh is one of those comments, you know, you know, where you the bigotry cal- is really how are you gonna calculate it? It's, it's, David, let just let, let me, William finish let let for a second, me, please. Let me complete my comment. Okay. Please. Let me complete my comment. That's the type of statement in which the bigotry (laughs) is dripping off of someone's words like perspiration. Let's keep in mind that the individuals who were coerced into into migrating to the Americas did not choose to to come to the Americas at their own volition. So it is not a matter of people who wanted to come to the United States or come to the Caribbean or come to South America being the folks who were imported. Instead, it was a situation in which a process of enslavement forced them to come. And so we have to start with that. We also have to consider the impact of imperialism and colonialism on the countries from which they originated. And so we have to construct a, a huge hyper uh, counterfactual to be able to, uh, to assess what the world would have been like in the absence of the slave trade, in the absence of imperialism and colonialism. And that's the story we have to tell for comparative purposes, rather than talking about what Africa looks like today. Okay, I'll Also tell you what. keep in mind, now here, no, there's, there's one more cru- crucial point. The colonial powers systematically eliminated the African leaders who would have exercised the greatest degree of independence, starting with Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, with uh, Deben Kimathi in Kenya, with uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, with Prince Ragwasore in Burundi. And so as a consequence, when we look at the African nations that exist today, we have to keep in mind that those are nations that are in their present form as a consequence of the extermination of the leaders who would have provided the greatest degree of creativity and independence.
17: Okay, Esther, uh, we're down to our last few minutes and there's so many angles to this that I think we need to do some justice to. I'll come back to you with this, Esther, because I, I know you actually, even though you support reparations, you are taking some serious issue with the process to get reparations to the people that you think uh... deserve them the problem is would it not be simpler to allow these community claims to be made to be the best way to get the results because if you start looking at these individual victims you'll find people who are now so mixed in ethnically with even slave owners uh... victims that can't actually prove their victims in a court of law it could all get so diluted at that point and so tedious that that no one wins So should there be a simple as possible way to do this, to make sure that something is paid out?
16: Well, if we start with the notion of payment, that's really the wrong starting point for some of us. Reparations is about remedying wrong and harm. It includes restitution, of course, compensation is there. But one of the key aspects of reparations are guarantees of non-repetition. And that is why in the UK, in the Stop the Matangamizi campaign, we are calling for the establishment of the All Party Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry for Truth and Reparatory Justice, because we need to hear the voices of those who today are impacted because of the ignorance of, of some of the people in society who feel that this is all in history and what we are also engaged in is can hearing it, the solutions it, that communities are working on themselves that need to be amplified and and that the, re, the restitution of our resources can go can towards I, can actually just, uh, rebuilding communities. I've
20: worked on trade deals um you know with Latin America all around the world through the EU and the UK as well that is a far better way of helping the Caribbean is fair trade. You know, the EU actually slammed the brakes on uh, sugar being imported into the UK and the EU putting out massive tariffs and barriers. That is the way to go. And Africa is doing incredibly well, actually, economically. And I'm very much in favor of that. You know, I would say far better to spend time on free trade uh, and uh, that, and enterprise and, and uh, investments actually uh, looking back hundreds of years and try to extract uh, reparations. I, I just don't think it's a good way to go.
17: Let me get William in quickly with this, with this question because, I mean, David's primary point in, in some senses was the fact that everyone, if you go back historically, especially hundreds of years, everyone will owe someone something, whether it's the, the Arabs in North Africa who've been asking the French for an apology for damage done in the Maghreb region whether it's they owe the Berbers an apology they some argue that they destroyed the language the culture of the indigenous populations there there's some who even do research into the carib population the indigenous population of the Caribbean uh, that was taken yeah. out so what do you say to that how can you really determine who's a victim to whom
19: so I think it's a it's a question of doing the research and also uh, saying that There may be multiple claims across the globe that many communities have for restitution, but that doesn't deny the claims that are being made in the present moment. I mean, consider the fact that Japanese Americans who were victimized during World War II did receive restitution from the U.S. government. But there was no attempt at that time to say, well, there are other communities in the United States like black Americans who merit restitution, Mm -hmm. even though that was the case. And I don't think that the Japanese-American claim should have been disrupted by paying attention to claims that other communities had. It is time to meet the claim for the people who were subjected to slavery and colonialism across the globe and any community that has a legitimate claim should come forward and make it. I don't have any, uh, any hesitation about saying that there are other places besides the Bahamas that have legitimate claims on the United Kingdom. Uh, okay. And so uh, I just say, come forth with those claims and let's, let's, let's resolve it.
17: David, I can see you clearly disagree, but that will have to unfortunately be the final word for this edition of the Newsmakers. I'd like to thank all three of my panelists sincerely so much for being with us and our viewers of course for joining us as well remember you can follow us on Twitter and do be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm Andrea Sankey, we'll see you next time.
2: And we must realize that the time is always right to do right.
8: That is what many believe is being weighed by California's first-in-the-nation
3: reparations task force. Act as if it's impossible to fail. We have to believe that we can make this change happen. The group is
8: examining counties like Kern, which has a history of being discriminatory towards African Americans even today. I'm Mikayla Armstrong, and this is a special report. The task force is studying how the state might calculate financial compensation for reparations to California descendants of enslaved African Americans. And I spoke to Kern County residents about the importance of this legislation and if approved, what this could change for black Californians. Reparations are not uncommon. The German government paid more than $86 billion to Holocaust victims and their heirs. In America, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 gave more than 82,000 Japanese Americans $20,000 each reparations and a formal apology by President Reagan for their interment during World War II.
12: This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race.
8: However, for African-Americans whose ancestors endured 250 years of slavery, there has been no headway regarding restitution except now at the state level. In order to grant reparations or even to consider them, The country has to come to terms with what slavery was and did. And that's something that we've never done as a country.
19: I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. I think we're always a work in progress in this country, uh, but no one currently alive was responsible for that.
8: We would all like to
3: think that it's in the past and just get over it and just move on. And it's not that simple. Almost knee-jerk reaction, particularly in white America, that if I allow my consciousness to reckon with racism and with how this country has treated African Americans, that's going to somehow interfere with or disrupt how I see myself. As, a, uh, as an American who comes from a nation that prides itself on liberty and justice for all. We are literally the only
1: population of people who have never received any form of reparations whatsoever, in any capacity.
3: America was built on the back of slavery.
6: It's always refreshing to make something right for both parties the one that has done the wrong. But what they're saying and they're thinking is, well, I didn't commit that
12: wrong. Others did. But you cannot excuse the ramifications
6: of the results of that wrong, and especially if you find out through data and research that it still has a negative impact on the people,
7: on the African American.